I'm here today with Armana Shragi, the CEO of Curve, a pioneering company in the embedded analytics space. Before that, Arman was the founder of Logi Analytics, which became a leading business intelligence company in the DC area and was acquired not long ago by uh, a company called Insight Software, I believe. Uh, millions of people use or are affected by software that Armand's companies have created, often without knowing it because it gets embedded into other applications and products. And we're going to hear all about his journey as an entrepreneur and an executive today. Armand, thank you for joining us on Road to CEO. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, let's let's start right at the beginning. Did you always want or plan to be an entrepreneur? I think so. Without knowing it, you know, we, we as human do things that normally we may not know the reason, right? So it's not mm -hmm. like we have a very big analytical mind, and then we can analyze and understand exactly why we are doing things. That's not the way it works. Our brain is very associative. So you can really take one bit of information and within a fraction of a time, you can really associate it with zillions of things without even knowing it, right? So, um, and that's the way brain works. It not, it's not analytic, meaning that you are not really running a spreadsheet in your mind. You cannot quickly sort it. You cannot quickly group by the information. You cannot quickly get the total and see 25% of this total is really about 23% of the other one. And then this compare this and then tell people that which fraction is bigger or worse or better, you know, those kind of trend analysis, those kind of comparative analysis, none of those we can do well in our brain. And that's why we are really using machine and we are enjoying cooperation with machine because that's the complementary part of us. They are great in analytics, not yet great in associative kind of, you know, memory that we have. Having said that, so we get things done Back to your question, we get things done, then we can go back 20 years ago, analyze it, see if we can figure out why it happened. So now answering your question, if I go back to, you know, I'm in mid fifties now, but if I go back to age of 18, when I started you know, in university in the first year in college, then I started my first company with some colleagues in university. And uh, then I would say, yes, probably that's the case. I, I, you know, I, I don't think I was super excited about academia, despite all of the encouragement I was getting from everyone, um, parents, even university or high school and teachers were wonderful to me. I have so much great memory of them encouraging me. And it's not like I was not successful in, you know, academia. I could get good grade. If I want to do it, I will do it. I enjoy math. math and everything related to math, physics, and other things. So I could really see that, you know, I can do well academically if I want, but does it energize me? Probably, I would say, on the business side and software side, it was more energy for me. As soon as, you know, I could see some something, I don't know. I mean, to me, it was not just a dumb device. It was a smart device. As soon as I realized I can sit down in front of my Commodore 64 back then and just program it and every day it gets smarter as we spend more time together, that was fascinating to me, right? And that was fascinating at the software level that you can really, really make these devices smarter every day. And then on the business side, you know, I spend a lot of time post, um, you know, after 
I finished my classes during the day. Then I was going to a company working with their finance um, people and sitting in front of computer from you know 6, 7 p.m. until midnight and just programming things for them on their own computer. And then um, I could see in a few months, then I could deliver something that maybe at the beginning it was too basic, but at the end of some month, it was really doing much better job than any other accountant in the group. It was doing faster, better, no error. It was not, you know, you, you didn't need to check the numbers to see if it, they have the total is correct or not. Everything was perfect. And then the beauty of that business was I could really take that floppy disk back then and just copy it and give it to another company. And that to me was now I have hundreds of companies need this floppy disk and I don't need to sit down and work hard for another six months, nine months, and I can still benefit them and help them in a big way. And that was really, really the eye-opening from my perspective on the business side. And then, of course, I loved software, the entity, that the, 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 the way it works and the benefit it can create for everyone. And just do these tedious jobs, automated, a smart way, intelligent way, all fascinating from any aspect. So that, I think, ignited that kind of, and then I could see that's what really, you know, I love to do. So every every semester, every, you know, uh, every year, you see that, you know, my interest is higher in business, my interest is lower in kind of continuing and become, you know, go and become a, a PhD student or something. And then, uh, you know, I finished university as I promised uh, to my parents, I will do it, I will not drop off from <laughs> the university and then at that point when I finished the you know the the course after four or five years then I already had you know we already had about 50 60 employees and then um, I started the second company back then with my wife Kathy which we married and we were classmates in university as well and then we had the second company and the second company was exactly when Windows came to market mm -hmm. the first one when MS-DOS came to market and then, you know, we did a similar thing on Windows, more modern. And then I came to the US, XML came to market and web was very new. And I did Logi XML. Now the first company doing those kind of things for XML and web and reporting, dashboarding. And then, you know, at um, in 2015, then AWS, you know, came with the idea of serverless and microservices and those kind of things. That was fascinating to me. And I thought that's the future. And this is really something we can do a lot with it. And all of the problems we could not solve before we can solve now. So I started Curvey and we got to that domain. So, so I want to get into both Curvey and Logi XML. Before that, though, um, were you self-taught as programming or did you study programming in school? Uh, well, by training, I'm an electronic engineer. And then we had a lot of, you know, courses around programming as well but to be honest with you i learned programming before i go to university so so it was not something i would say you know i learned during the you know it was just a it's a hobby for me so i loved it so much that i still i i knew programming when i started university and honestly i was even teaching programming uh in university to you know other people because it was very very new back then and everybody was working with mainframe and I'm talking about early 80s. So, um, you know, at that time, then it was something that, you know, people who know how to work with personal computer and, you know, it was a, something that, um, you know, you could really go with others and just talk. And, it, you know, it, it was something new back then. 
I remember my my dad had a Commodore 64 as that was the first computer I was exposed to. Um, right. Yeah, and it was a great computer. It was, uh, it, yeah, it, it had, uh, I mean, it was really ahead of its time, I think. And, uh, you know, it really, it inspired me a little bit too. Uh, although I didn't go into the programming side of it, I did, I was shown a few things and it was really remarkable the first time you execute a program and you see it actually uh, you, you know, change things and, and do what you tell it to do. It is a pretty remarkable thing. Yeah, no, it's fascinating because for example, uh, you know, there was a very simple, very, very simple uh, game, which I learned how to write it. I think there was a magazine or something I read and it was like, you know, this is the source code for this very simple game, three or four pages of code. Then I started learning and that was fascinating. I could just you know, see how you can really develop a game and the game is challenging a human yeah. back then. And it was, you know, you work with, it was not a game meaning the video game. It was more a kind of, you know, you suggest a option and the computer suggests mm -hmm. an option and who wins at the end with the best option. And the logic was so simple that it could crystallize the way that you can really put an intelligence and then what is fascinating was creating that intelligence or training that intelligence and other friends or everybody else that I knew, hey, just play with this game. Let's put this game together, customize it, do it this way. And they could see, wow, I'm, I'm, for the first time ever in my life, I see an intelligent you know, device. Never, ever I saw such a thing before, right? So that's the kind of beauty of this piece of electronics that when we really invented if that was the start of intelligence right so in electronics mm. you can translate it to particular electronic circuits that they can make a decision and that happened in you know in human history around you know 1940s or you know those kind of time so at that time we discovered we invented that if in electronics mm. and before that that we had a similar mechanic mechanically we could really do that kind of if, but mechanically it's too limiting. Electronically, it was better. Mm. And then uh, that was really the fascinating part of the computers. Very interesting. And so, and and so now, when you were in college, you then get a job at uh, a company that needed help in their accounting department. Did you plan to create a program? Well, when you took that job, or did you just take the job and then realize, oh, I could execute this in a much better way? Um, or did you go in and do that intentionally? Yeah, so this is the way it works. So as I said, I knew computer and software and these kind of things before I go to come to, to, to university. So when I started university, people realized that, okay, this guy is kind of, you know, good at um, these kind of things. And they knew that, hey, Arman, if you have any question, go to Arman and ask. So somebody came to me after a couple of months and said, Armand, it seems like, you know, um, you're good at software and you like software. You're starting a company for of us. And why not joining us? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, three of us plus you is four of us. We can really do this kind of, or maybe five of us can do. So it's still the number was very, at that point, fluid, how many people can get mm -hmm. together to do it. And then we, I said, I love it. And then, you know, I, I joined that group of people. And while I was doing really more a kind of, um, helping, even if, again, not officially, I was certified yet, but it's still professors ask me to help them as a kind of, you know, assistant to really on this computer and software 
So I was working in a way over mm. there in university for them as an assistant and and um, doing TA. And then at the same time, I started this company um, with this group of people. When we started the company, there were a few company, a few, um, I would say, manufacturing plus maybe they had uh, yeah they had manufacturing they had offices but it was a uh, you know i don't know how many employees they had let's say 1000 employees but they were manufacturing things different things and then they had these offices that was automating everything from accounting mm -hmm. to payroll to inventory to anything else so they needed to really collect all of these into their computers rather than doing it manually and then you then they needed to get the data out in particular reports and you know just creating the reporting they need to get the data out so they were our customers at the company i started with them so in order but the deal was not like we have the package for you the deal was we are going to come sit down and create a customized software for you mm -hmm. and then out of those customized software then we package it and then we had the right to package it and then have a package that then you can sell with enough customization ability to others. But it was not a personal kind of job. It was like for the company we started, then we added these customers one after another, after another, and then we accelerated the business that way. And my interest was more on how to create a platform that is so customizable that people can really customize it on their own mm -hmm. and getting the data in. So the way I developed it back then was a kind of metadata, if you name it that way. Back then, I didn't name it metadata, but it was a text file. Then you could really go to the text file and put some numbers, and it was changing the behavior of the software. Mm -hmm. So if I go to company B, and company B has a different system for payroll, you could just change it. Or if you want a different report, you could change it and get the report out. And that became essentially a project that I finished in two, three years. And then I passed it to some other people. I did not develop after six, seven months. So it was more about really just you know help getting help from people who do, could do code better than me and then helping them and getting that system up and running but that was a very simple i would say low code no code technology on you know personal computer back then ms dos and pc dos and these kind of things so that's really interesting to me because i i know how you then later on founded logi analytics which was no code low code types a type of company as well. Um, and and what's interesting to me is how I know that company really sells to developers and solves a huge problem for technical, for developers. And so what I didn't know is that it sounds like you really started off by creating software that was designed to be helpful to developers and really solving problems for, for developers working quickly and accurately. So it's, it seems like there may be a, a line through your career that kind of where you have, have always been kind of addressing that need. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, I, it seems people tell me that, you know, one thing and you just do it again and again, and that's very correct. The other thing people tell me is you are very talented in selecting names that is hard to pronounce. <laughs> so, uh, but you're right. I mean, uh, yeah, that's probably true. But, uh, and the, the beauty of these new systems is you can do the same thing, but in a totally bigger, better, more flexible way. And then the other thing is from, when you do something, um, it takes some time to really understand exactly the benefits and the best way to do it, right? So when I came to the US and I did, you know, if you were asking me at the age of 18 or even the second company I started, 
uh, after that and logi xml and then logi analytics became the name was the third company if you were asking me in the first 10 years that what is embedded i had little things to say pretty limited information right but then you come and just you do it and you say you know let's just create these environments and then there are different peoples you cater it to developers so they can embed it so you are catering to essentially super users or developers and then they need when they embed it they need to cater that to two types of people to essentially power users and to end users and power users need something that is no code low code they are not coders but they are power users they if you give them something that they don't need to code still they have a lot to offer they know the data they know the business model they know how to change the process all of that thing they are very comfortable with tools like excel and other spreadsheets or this kind of thing so then you create a tool that is embeddable by these developers and is used by super by power users and then at the end the majority of users are going to be everyday users they are going to be you know, everyday people and they are going to be end users and they are not coders, they are not power users, they are not experts in a spreadsheet or anything. And then at the end, the end result needs to be something they like and they use. So at the same time that you're architecting and you are really putting the software together, you need to think about all these layers and tiers, right? Mm -hmm. So what I'm doing, it needs to be likable for all of these groups of people everybody needs to be able comfortable to do it um and that was the fascinating part i would say if i look at the software business some people like to create a platform some people like to create a solution some people like to create a tool so if you simplistically look at that really i would say i'm the platform guy right so i always what i did i wanted to create a platform and then pass that platform to people to take it and then either embed it or change it and make a solution out of it mm -hmm. and then pass it to power users and end users and then at the end they use it um but but that was really the way you know i could see that is kind of and and on the minus side it takes a while to build it mm -hmm. it's not as easy as go ahead and just build the utility and done uh, on the plus side when you build the, the platform it's just you can do a lot with it from business side you can scale it a lot from from benefit side there are tons of benefits there are tons of use cases there is no limit in essentially what you can do with such a technology if you grow it nicely so how did you end up coming to the us was that a plan that you had from the beginning or you i know you met your wife in college and you were in iran how did you end up uh moving here yeah so the it was kind of a plan but it was not a plan so it was like um 50 of it was dependent on us so we decided to come to the us 50 percent of it was based on the other side that we get the kind of you know uh, residency or visa or whatever to come here so we when we went to greece actually for our honeymoon um we you know went to the us embassy and we said hey Back then, Iran and U.S. didn't have a relationship like today, they say. And then we went to that embassy and said, can we just move to the U.S.? And they said, well, do you have anything like, you know, university maybe has accepted you? And said, no, we just wanted to move to the U.S. And we start our life here and we will figure out how to do it. 
And the guy was very kind and said, no, that's not normally the way it works. I cannot do that. But if you, you know, go ahead and just do some of these things, maybe, you know, we can help you and give you. A... And I said, okay, so it didn't work out that way. So 50%, mm -hmm. so that was the plan, but didn't work out. So <laughs> the plan was very ad hoc, very simple. Yeah. Plan. Uh, but essentially what it worked was we uh, received the green card in a lottery. So, so the green card lottery, we, Kathy, my wife, won. And then as a result, the family of three, my son, two years old back then, and Kathy and myself, then we could move to the U.S. And we received our green card back then this way in 95. And then we came to the U.S. And uh, then I started 96 with um, a job that was in Fairfax County with a company. Back then, my English was not good enough to communicate with any human so I thought I can easier communicate with computers <laughs> and let me just go there and find a job that I can sit down in front of computer and do this so I did it for six months or one year I think um, and then uh, I became a contractor to another company and subcontractor and contractor and very quickly I got to the point that after two years I had a prototype of this engine named XML. so I showed it to someone and said this is the prototype i have and they said it's fantastic it's a very nice concept and let's just do something with it and then i was lucky to meet a bunch of um, entrepreneurs back then and they said you know we wanted to build a software can you help us and i said if you use my engine i will help you but you need to help me to complete this engine and they said that that's fine. So I started working with them for a year based on the understanding that whatever comes out of this engine, it's the end solution is theirs, mm -hmm. but the engine technology behind the hood, I have the right and I can resell it and own it. And, uh, and they delivered the software to their customers. They had multi-million dollar projects and they were very good at software and the kind of, non-web-based software but they wanted to move to web and make something web-based and that was the part that my engine could help them and that's why you know we were so so that's really what i did for them and they delivered these to a number of companies uh, in the u.s and worldwide uh, outside the u.s and after a year as we agreed uh, the engine was at the level that i started logi xml and that became uh, you know the engine was the ip essentially that i owned and then they became my customer and they signed up. And still, as far as I know, while I was at Logi, still they were a customer of Logi, even if the company was sold a few times afterward uh, and grow and became, you know, much bigger company. And they were acquired a few times by different parties. Um, but that was the story that how, you mm -hmm. know, I got into kind of a starting a company and how, you know, I came to the U.S., that's fascinating. So, so in so you funded it initially out of revenue from a client engagement, and then you've got a product and you've got a platform really that you can now build a company around. Um, what year was this approximately? It's the mid nineties. So when we started, um, uh, maybe we started the engagement. It was ninety eight, uh, I believe, and then uh, uh, I think January two thousand, I started uh, Logi. So about a month or a year or two months, something like that. Yeah. So And so the first year, did you have any outside investment or was it funded 
uh, or the, I mean, maybe the first year after that, the first year after you, you really started Logi XML, was it funded out of revenue purely or did you immediately want to take on new revenue or new investment? Yeah, so we had light investment, I would say. So collectively during the first, until we got to $5 million sales mm. per year at Logi. And back then it was not subscription. It was perpetual licensing that we were selling and 20% for maintenance charging and then a, a little bit for support on top of that but it was very kind of perpetual licensing mm -hmm. and we got to five million i think collectively maybe i had you know less than one million or two million dollar kind of investment by then so it was very very light kind of cash fusion uh, but we were selling to at the beginning i started selling to a couple of strategic accounts that they were willing to pay a little bit more, mm -hmm. but when the software is ready, then they get lifetime perpetual license and mm -hmm. kind of unlimited. So they don't need to buy more copies per customer or something like that. So that kind of a special deal deals helped me all the time. When I start a company, I find you know those kind of uh, visionaries yeah. that they share the passion for we share the passion for that vision that I bring to the table and of course they need to trust me that I'm I'm okay I'm 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 able to bring that vision to reality and then they start helping you financially and they have you know that kind of money and other things to help you in this case for example my first customer also gave us office space for free for mm. almost two years, right? So we didn't pay rent, for example. That was a big help. And then they had enough office space. They said, just use it, but instead provide us free technical support when we need anything. And we said, fair enough. And we did it. Um, they were very kind to us, um, helping us with also, you know, some other things that we needed at the beginning. And also, you know, they gave us cash because of that kind of universal enterprise-wide licensing we provided them. Mm -hmm. um, so that that was really the main kind of funding we received at the very beginning. Back then, you know, about 400K, it was a good chunk of kind of, I mean, collectively mm -hmm. with everything we received, money and cash and non-cash. But I think the cash part was about 240K we received. And it was a good size money for me back then to start, just getting things started. Um, and then... Uh, yeah, and, and to be honest with you, they normally get good reward out of it because mm -hmm. they, they they received some you know shares of the company, a small amount of shares, and that share essentially returned multiple times of that original money back to them, um, to the company. Um, so after you know seven years, they got multiple times back. So so it's good. It's good for both sides. They help me, and then I get to the point that then the shares are you know more valuable and they can get their money back, but also they help something happen. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. I think you mentioned that when you hit 5 million in revenue, something changed. Did you, did you, is that the moment where you decided to take on more investment? Cause I know at one, at some point you took on a series A round of venture capital. Where, when did that come to pass? Yeah. So the, the, the total booking for the year, um, revenue is a tricky word, um, because as you know, mm -hmm. there are different rules and back then, there were even added rules to you know how you could count booking as revenue or not so i'm not sure about the figure on revenue 
but the booking meaning just you know what we are selling and based on the you know what we invoice customers was around five million dollar when when we raised money so so i raised series a at that point and it was around um, nine million dollar series a uh, from two vc firms that were local in dc and uh, and it's still good friends um updata and grow tech Mm -hmm. And uh, these two uh, collectively put $9 million as Series A into Logi back then. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the kind of Series A investment in end of 2007 and 2008, uh, essentially. And how did that change things, if if any, uh, if anything? Did it, uh, you, you then I assume had some venture capitalists on the board. Um, how did that change the way you wanted to manage the company? Yeah, so um, people go through a, 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 you know different phases. So there are there is a phase that you don't know what you don't know, and then you go to the phase that you don't know, you know what you don't know, and then you go to the phase that now, you know, um, you know what you don't know, and you fix it, and now you know what you know. Uh, so so those kind of phases for everyone for any entrepreneur happens. Definitely when I raised money, there were a lot of things I didn't know and I didn't know I didn't know, right? So I were in that phase. And then you go through these processes and start learning. And you start learning with everybody else around you. It's not like everybody else around you knows everything, right? So they are also discovering, they are also evolving, they are also learning. And everybody's, you know, just working with each other the best they can, as long as the intention is good, I think everyone will cooperate. And then communication is good, great. Let's just do it. Okay, I didn't know this part. I'm learning this part and these kind of things. So it was a good experience to go through this phase. And I don't think there was any way around it without going through this experience for me to learn what I learned. Hmm. Did we do everything perfectly? No. But did we work with each other in the best we could and having a great experience and still stay friends after so many years and nobody come back and say, hey, you know, you know, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. No, that didn't happen. Everyone did well. At the end, you know, we understood that we did this part well, we learned this part. So to me, the biggest, one of the biggest kind of things that I learned was when you raise money, you need to be at a certain stage that you can actually have the machinery. You need to have the machinery at that point. And your expectation should be minimum from investors, it's not like they are there to, at least on the East Coast, that's the way it works. You should not really expect them to be your mentors. You should not expect them to help you to run your business better. You should not expect them to have a magic, you know, wand or something and then make things happen just because now they are there. Mm -hmm. You should actually expect that you need to have the machinery working and just going to the board and going to investors and saying, I'm using your money to just run this machinery faster. Mm -hmm. And if your machinery is not yet at that level and you have not figured out how to make this machinery run faster and run well, then that's the phase that is not great because you have taken the money, more money, than you had before. The expectation is you mm -hmm. can go faster and grow mm -hmm. faster and do bigger. And then all of a sudden you say, well, 
you know, the machine I build, the car I build could drive at 20 miles per hour. But if you drive really 50 or 60 miles, it just doesn't work. It will break. Mm. And, you know, I have a, now I have rocket fuel. I can put that fuel there and go faster from that that standpoint. But mechanically, I have not figured out yet how to really make, make this car in the way it can run faster. And then at mm. that point, you have taken the money and clock is ticking. Yeah. And still you are figuring out how to make it faster, how to build the team. And these things take time for any entrepreneur. Then before you didn't have maybe the money, maybe you didn't have that backing, maybe you couldn't bring any talent you wanted, either you could not afford, or maybe that talent was not okay to join a company with that backing. But now you can, but it takes time. Then bring the team, having the experience, how to organize them. So that's the phase that I would say, based on my experience today, I would say, choose the right time to really ask for the money. And probably for us, it was a little bit early back then to ask for money. We could continue a little bit further and maybe we should have, you know, maybe getting into a bigger number, maybe 10 million or so. And then at that point, then we were ready for another company that number might be much lower for another experience, maybe mm-hmm. experience CEO that might be much lower for me as the kind of entrepreneur, you know, just doing everything classically and, you know, doing kind of things. Probably I needed a little bit more time, especially it was a new environment, US, everything for me, just, you know, I should have given myself a little bit more time to make sure every, the machine, the car can really run faster and then, you know, put the, feel there so as a result probably i would say it was a little bit kind of we did well uh, it's not like we didn't do well so the revenue started growing 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 but to me it was a little bit kind of rough kind of planning it was not like as easy planning as you normally go and you in q4 you sit down you finalize the plan for next year and then you know what you do and then next year you go and execute the plan and more or less, you get 20% up or down and you deploy. That was not the case. It was more, you know, a stressful kind of planning and getting things done and bringing people. And a little bit of that probably didn't need to be like that. When you raise VC money, I expect if you do it right, it should be much smoother to get there. I think that's a really interesting point. You know, I think the, um, you know, that the clock really starts ticking. And so if you don't, if you, if you haven't lined things up so that you can just essentially apply that money to increase your pace, then, you know, things probably are going to get uncomfortable with the, with the investors. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Again, you need to, in my, in my part, what I learned was you get the money from investor to a scale, to essentially the, the best example might be one of some of these franchise businesses, right? So you have 10 branches, you have a proof of concept, it's working well. Now you bring the money to make 10 branches, 100 branches. That's the best model you can work. But, but let's create those 10 branches first, make sure everything works. If you have only one branch and, you know, you have you know, one franchisee and that works or you wanted to branch out and have more branches either way. If you wanted to really have, just you have one, doesn't mean that still you know how to go fast. Let's go and create maybe the second, third, maybe getting to 10. So there's a middle phase that maybe 
that's the part that you know it's a different type of investor maybe needed for that phase maybe maybe more visionary but a little bit involved but not too much involved maybe I don't know but I haven't I'm, I'm not expert in that but I know that is a different phase and that's mm -hmm. normally the phase that things get hard for many founders and entrepreneurs because they are good to create the POC and proof of concept and then investors are good if you have 10 of those and you know you can move fast come and give you money and then work with you to scale it but this kind of phase in between uh, normally you know entrepreneurs running out of cash they need fuel they jump too early to really bring the money and investors want that company doing well promising and they jump too early to make it happen because it might be too late afterwards to get the company and they may lose that opportunity so mm -hmm. both sides yeah. in a way try to make that bridge and to be honest with you that phase is neither is neither perfect for investor nor perfect mm -hmm. for founders and we see a lot of casualties there right so um and and some investors you know get mad at founders or founders get mad at investors sometimes doesn't work that breach uh, but that's the tricky point the, the the phase in between yeah very interesting so let's skip ahead then because you you then after Logi, you've now created a company called Curve, which I think was very influenced probably by your experience at, at Logi. Um, how did that company, how did Curve come about? Sure. So um, again, as part of the experience, I think market and marketing part and is the is the biggest part that I think in our case makes the companies great, right? So in software technology for most part. The way we work and what i learned on that front was that just because you're selling to more people doesn't mean you are doing the right thing mm -hmm. at logi we had this technology that for the first time we created a web-based reporting dashboarding purely web-based natively web-based that was the first time and uh, when we started the de facto of the market was crystal reports and some other tools but they were kind of desktop tools and nobody at that time thought that web is going to really be able to ever do that so just the the, the difference between the capabilities of web and capabilities mm -hmm. of desktop it was not even comparable so people were asking me questions like how do you I mean, there's impossible for us to really go with a web-based kind of reporting what if the connection uh, is not good what if uh, you know some of, some of us don't have connection? What if I'm sitting in an airplane? What what if, for example, I have connection but it's very slow and I cannot wait for information, tons of information to be loaded? Back then, all of these were question marks, and people could not believe that in three or four years everyone would have internet connection. There is no question of a speed. A speed would be. 10 100 times faster it's very it would be very reliable the same thing that happened to cloud when cloud started that i'm not going to put my information you know in the cloud mm -hmm. right so it's not safe and now people say i need to move my data to aws because it's not safe for rit to manage it they can manage it better so so exactly reverse right so now people move to aws for higher security but when cloud started actually you were concerned that I don't want to really put my data in the cloud. 
totally the same thing happened at back then that really people questions that question that so when i learned that okay we can bring uh, we can we can do it we signed up everyone we signed up jail system we signed up libraries we signed up homeland security government estate government large enterprises software companies everyone could come in and just buy this web-based reporting dashboarding from us and we taught brilliant we did it right what a, what a great thing every week we are collecting all of these you know orders and money and everything and ramping up and adding more customers to the point that after 10 years or so you get to the point that you realize you are your biggest competitor right you are competing with yourself in a way nobody no other competitor competes with you because nobody no none of these sectors large enterprise SaaS companies embedded oem small businesses state government federal government whatever all of these sectors that you are saying none of them you can focus on it your roadmap is a little bit of everything and your product is going to do a little bit of everything just to be good enough at best but it's not going to be great and you cannot be great because there's no focus. You cannot be the best solution for software companies. You cannot be the best solution for government. You cannot be the best solution for large enterprise or for SMB. You cannot because each of them has a different type of need. And if you wanted to dive deep and go deeper, you have to pay attention to those very sophisticated requests and requirements and the easiest stuff are done but now you need to get into the details and we couldn't. So when I started Curvy, I said, let's hyper-focus. Let's just go pick one sector and dive deep. And I realized that software companies and SaaS companies, they are underserved, mm -hmm. mostly because they are new. That's a new sector. It's a growing, fast-growing sector, but it's a very new sector. The requirements are tough. They need more and the number of them is less, meaning that huge companies like Microsoft or, you know, um, back then Tableau, for example, or um, for example, Amazon, none of these companies are going to pay attention to invest billions of dollars into this sector, yet it's a small, mm -hmm. yet these guys need something more complex, more sophisticated, because as a software company, I'm selling to 200, 500 thousands of other clients and each client has a different need so i need a totally different level of flexibility so i need something more advanced more sophisticated but the number of software companies compared to everything else and the amount of money there is not so so we said for us it's kind of the focus let's go do it it's the underserved part is growing fast we are small we are not expecting two billion dollar revenue so it's great timing for us to do it. And besides, we have done it in a POCS style in the previous company. So we know how to do it because we already have a proof of concept for it. It was not 100% of what we did in the past, but it was a good part of the business that through that, we didn't, we couldn't dive deep, but we did, you know, a good enough solution and we did it at the right time. And we understood the requirements of hundreds of companies asking for those capabilities okay so that's so that's really the the genesis then of curve where you are currently so then did you so then um to 
take up where we left off on the investment front, how did you handle investment for Curve? Yeah, so again, the same pattern, right? So you find some um, people who are visionary yeah. and they, they, they have a passion, they, they understand your vision, they wanted to participate as a strategic kind of partners at the beginning. And then you pick one or two of them, a couple of them, then you start with them. And then uh, the company get the very initial kind of, you know, start with them. Uh, and then you get it to the point that then you need more investment for the middle stage. And the middle stage is still not ready for institutional investment, but you need money. And then you go through that phase that Curve went through and then we raised money, but not from institutional investors. Mm -hmm. Still, we got that money without, you know, kind of working with those institutions the way they work. And then at that phase, then at one point you say, this is now completely ready to the point that if you wanted to expand it, you can expand it. Everything is figured out. It's a machinery. You know, we are talking about tens of millions of millions of revenue ARR wise. Let's just scale it to billion dollar value kind of company, mm -hmm. then you're ready. Now go and just ask if it's, and there are plenty of them out there that are willing to work with you at that stage. And that's great for them. And that's great for you. So at that point then, so I'm doing it in a three phase style rather than the two phase classic style that in my view, that two phase, the, the middle is very tricky for both sides. Mm -hmm. And I have a good understanding now on how we see world works and, you know, it's, the way they work and I fully get it from their perspective and I fully get it from founders perspective. But I think these three stage kind of mode rather than two stage process and, and, and you know, timeline works best. That's where we are. So we have raised some money um, and we are raising money, but it doesn't mean we are raising from institutional investors. I see. And until we get to that point that we say now everything is ready to go for you know, PEs or VCs or any other institutional investor who wants to come in and just join us and grow together. You also made a comment about how there's a difference between East Coast and West Coast styles of venture capitalists. Can you explain a little bit about what you meant by that? And just for the audience here, you know, you started off, you, you mentioned that you raised from venture capital from East Coast folks for the Logi analytics days. And now I believe you have have uh, offices both in Silicon Valley and in the DC area for Curve. Is that is that right? So we didn't change the office. I just moved myself to the Bay Area, right? So so I have been there for some years, and now I'm considering to move to Austin, Texas. Hmm. Um, but it was just me moving, not the company. The company is stayed in Northern Virginia. It still is just outside Washington DC in Tyson's area. And we are happy about that point. We have no plan to change it. So it will stay there. And the same with Logi, you know, both companies, the same area, Tyson's area. I think it's fantastic area is growing and it's great for business. So, um, but nonetheless, from my perspective and my experience, and again, that's very much might be, a, it, it, you know, take it with a grain of salt because I'm not analyst. I have not interviewed a lot of founders on this topic. I have not talked to a lot of VCs or, other people, but based on my personal experience and what I have observed is that sometimes there is, uh, because of Silicon Valley being so focused in one industry and that software very much focused in that. And of course they have maybe, you know, um, uh, 
silicon business as well but but for most part software business is driving silicon valley uh, they have so much focus there and so much uh, putting so much resources on that it provides them some abilities to have an ecosystem mm. and on the east coast where i was you know for example in dc area software is one of the industries you can go with 200 other sectors you know and, and all of those sectors are doing very well but software is one of them so it's maybe five percent of the economy it's not you know 90 percent or 80 percent of the economy as a result what i observed and experienced was that the ecosystem is not there so the investor job is investor job but when you go to the West Coast, the investor understands that that second stage needs to be treated differently. Mm -hmm. And they provide you more support to founders. They get it. They know that the founder has raised money. But if this is a promising founder and they see that this founder can get to the third stage and this company can get to the third stage, with the understanding of yet we are in the second stage, they have coaches available coming, joining. They may even bring someone to run the company with the founder for that stage or do a lot of other things. And then founder gets more support. And even peer to peer, you have more founders around you that you can also interact with them. It's a bigger ecosystem. And then many of them you know you are collaborating so there are more opportunities and honestly i should add that post-covid things are totally different so i'm a little bit outdated because what i'm telling you is really you know maybe it's changing as we speak so during the last year i have seen a lot of changes in the bay area post-covid different it's not the same silicon valley pre-covid so I have seen a lot of changes everywhere else. It's more remote, more distributed. That is healthy for the whole country and for the whole world. A more distributed system is extremely healthy. You don't want having too much focus in one geographic area. Mm. And that is not necessarily a great thing to do. So, so I'm, I'm all for it, but I see more distribution now. But mm. the way it used to be back then, at least in my time, when I raised money in East Coast, and then I observed, you know, the West Coast investments as well, I could see the ecosystem versus just, you know, investor coming, writing a check, giving to you and say, hey, I'm sitting on the board of 10 companies, and I can't see you every two months, but I'm busy most of the time on other stuff I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And my job is to come to the board or talk with you a few times in between if you want. But essentially, you are on your own. Go and figure it out. What I expect, I expect really to see, you know, the plan and then you make the plan happen versus you are in the second stage, making the plan, creating the plan, creating, making sure it's the right plan, how to make it happen. I can offer some other things, not just the money, right? And then it is the process and it, it's good for both of us because both of us are going to get in a better, be in a better place when we get to the third stage. That's very interesting. Um, is that driving your, just your uh, thought process on maybe moving to Austin? The fact that the post COVID changes have made things a little more distributed. 
yes, that's part of it. I see the energy and the growth that I see in Austin um, totally um, unparalleled. When mm. you know, pre-COVID, you could go to a lot of places in the Bay Area. I had, you know, I was going to a lot of events, and there was no shortage of really, uh, you know, activities. You could really go and just you know meet with people and do a lot of things it was just the problem was which of them I should do because I have 10 options at any given day and uh, post-COVID there was no you know the, the level of activities were down and, and everything was remote that essentially okay if it's remote then I can do it in any way I want and most people really if they moved out of the Silicon Valley even one hour just you know maybe maybe they moved most of them didn't move out of the state they just moved one or two hours out of the bay area but it's still that was enough not to make it right so when you are two hours you know yeah. farther down the road how can you just come to these kind of gatherings very often at that point so so it changed a lot of things and then austin i was here uh, a number of times and i could see the energy and the growth and it's growing fast and especially in SAS. and then i also I went a couple of times to Miami and the energy was great, but it was mm. more for crypto and for Web3 mm. and some other things that you can do over there and maybe virtual reality or, you know, other things that you could do over there. Uh, so if I wanted to start a company today and it was about really, you know, maybe creating, uh, um, you know, about Web3 or something or crypto or something, then I would go probably, I would definitely seriously would consider you know, putting my base in Miami, I could see that ecosystem created there and it's booming. And then if I wanted to create a SaaS company, I would select Austin, Texas today mm -hmm. for my SaaS company to be starting here. I see now the ecosystem is shaping, more investors are available. It's, it's growing very rapidly. More importantly, the energy is here, right? So that's what you want. That's the more uh, leading indicator. That's yeah. what tells you the future. If you see the energy, that's what tells you that the future will be bright. Um, and uh, and it's the best time to really experience Austin. Besides, it's very central. And that was very appealing to me because I can't get anywhere I want within, within three hours. So I have to still be on the East Coast a lot. I need to mm -hmm. be on the West Coast. And Austin is great to you know, have a central place. So, so all of those kind of things helped me to make my decision easier that I should move to Austin, Texas. Very interesting. Did, uh, Ed, I want to take this in a totally different direction now. Did the Silicon Valley Bank uh, collapse? Did that have any impact on you or did that change uh, your thinking for the next 12 months, say, in terms of how you want to run the, your business? So I would say, no, because of a reason that I look at the big picture. When I look at the big picture, I see U.S. economy to be very solid. I don't have any problem with that. I think companies are doing the right thing. They are, they are doing the right business. If we did not have that solid foundation, then I could say, wow, it's a problem. Now this bank or the other bank you know, is going you know, out of business or doing something. But when I see the, the foundation is solid, the, we are doing the right thing. The country is on the right track, in my view. 
I mean, people can criticize a lot of details. I'm just talking about the big picture, very, very big picture, right? So let's just go and look at the very big picture. Don't pay attention to a lot of details. And also, let's put it into uh, a little bit of perspective and let's get the perspective that um, we are comparing ourselves with the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you are looking at it isolated way and say everything needs to be perfect. Let's just not doing that. Let's look at the whole globe, look at the whole countries on earth, and then looking in the US and then say, okay, this is the US economy. And then say, well, this is solid. We have a great foundation here and we are driving the world economy. And I don't have any problem with that picture to be nervous about a single bank, you know, doing something. Mm -hmm. I mean, I understand the bank, you can take higher risk for higher reward and the higher risk may not materialize. The only way you can make sure no bank will go out of business is they don't take any risk. And that means very minimum reward. Mm -hmm. So my perspective is not like that's a problem. My pro It's part of the business, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and so when that happened, I was probably too calm, right? Everybody mm -hmm. else around me was asking me, hey, should we do this? Should we do that? Hey, what about this funding is here? Maybe we should open different accounts and move this here. And I said, I don't really, let's just wait for a few days. And I think I don't, I don't see any problem with that. But besides, we are okay at least for some weeks. And then at that point, we will make a decision. So for, for where, where, where we are, I didn't see any problem. So we were not impacted based on the situation we did not have any account with svb of course otherwise i would say yes i would be probably very nervous at that point mm -hmm. but at the same time i have the trust that this system will fix itself yeah. in the right way adequately they're not going to just let people suffer because you know this kind of thing so they did the right thing i think you know they took quick action and i think everything seems to be right now at the less uh, concerning point at this as far as I'm concerned <laughs> so so yeah so so that's that's my take but no it did not have any impact direct impact uh on on curve yet hasn't had any impact yet and I don't foresee that to be a problem and I think that will be part of just the whole thing that we are going through as a bigger economy and and mm -hmm. you know Technology moves up, technology moves down. Sometimes it slows down. Sometimes one sector seems to be taking over the world and everybody wants to go to that sector and overspend or overinvest. And then it turns out that we are running too fast. We should adjust the speed. And there are some you know, situations that it needs some adjustments. So I'm still very bullish about technology sector. I just think if you are running too fast, you have to adjust your speed to be realistic. But it doesn't mean that sector is... It doesn't have the the you know the potential. It's still, technology will be one of the big potential if someone wants to invest. It's just it's the speed of the growth is adjusting in my view. Mm -hmm. So um, I've got just a couple other questions I, I always like to ask, and um, but I think we're we're getting close to the end here. The one one thing I'd like to ask is. Um, did you, some CEOs do just about everything. They do, they handle the finances, they handle uh, sales and marketing. They do, you know, they kind of have their hand in everything. How do you, what's your style of, of management as a CEO? Well, you, you have to get involved sometimes. There's no way around it, unfortunately. Of course, the best case scenario is, you know, because CEOs, well, I shouldn't say CEOs. I should say, in my case, 
you know, Armand is not expert in any of these domains. You know, I'm not expert in product management. I'm not expert in sales or marketing or anything else because I have not done any of these professionally for some years to say, I have done it for five years. I know inside and out of it. And without that experience, I cannot claim that I really know how to run it. So the best case scenario is you have those people that you know, and they are best at what they do and they manage it. And then you work with them and you're kind of, you know, um, running this orchestra. And then you just make sure that they are aligned and everything is working well between them and everything, the company is moving to the right direction and strategically doing well. That's said, that's very idealistic. Then in reality, things are not necessarily perfect in every single part. So you have to get involved and you have to pick which part is the highest priority at that quarter to get involved. And if you're involved in too many things at the same time, probably it's not going to do well. And so, so in my view is what is the priority for this quarter? Let's get it a little bit better. Then go to the next priority for the next quarter and get it better. But at the end of the day, um, I don't want to be involved in running every day that department. That's not the intention. That's not the way it should be. Um, I'm not good at it, even if I decide to do it. So I have, um, so, so, but you know, you, you need to set the right metrics. I'm a data analytic guy. So you need to have the right metrics, not too many of them, but enough of them that gives you the picture. What are those leading indicators? You need to understand based on this data that I'm collecting, I can see that this one is on the right path. This part is not on the right path. Let's see what is the root cause. Can we get to the root cause? Can we fix it? And there will be always as you grow as a business, you know, not all of the all parts of the company from the time that you start building the product and then you market it and then you sell it and then you deliver it. So if you look at the product team, if you look at the marketing team, sales team, and if you look at the CX and customer experience team, all four parts, you know, they are doing a lot of things every day. And then do you have the right metrics to look at them and have a good understanding which ones are great, doing well, which ones may need some adjustments from any aspect, which one will be the bottleneck as you are growing to the next stage. So I'd love to know, I'd love to hear, uh, you know, what you'd have to say for people who either want to work with Curve or partner with Curve, invest in Curve, or just use Curve. You know, uh, what what would you, you know, why, why don't you we end with a, a little plug for for you know your priorities for Curve, kind of where it's headed, you know, who should who should be involved, that sort of thing. Yeah, we are the only business that I know that is solely focused to serve SaaS companies for their embedded analytic and self-service analytics needs. So we are offering a full complete layer of embedded self-service analytics to these SaaS companies. Now, this focus that solely we serve SaaS companies and nobody else, it brings a lot of advantages to them. They get the support that they need, the training, they get the product they need. The product roadmap does not compete. It's just for them. We fully understand them. There hasn't been anything like this in the history of software ever. This is the first time this is happening. So as a result, we can provide them 
the technology that was never in that depth available to them. Mm -hmm. Such a great fit from any aspect, from licensing, pricing, support, training, product features, architecture, security, whatever they can think of. This is, this is the opportunity for us, for them to partner and work together. And that's the vision that Curve is the analytic self-service layer for SaaS products. So if you have a SaaS product, if you have a product manager who wants to productize something, that's what we do. We know how to do it. And that's the only thing we do. Well, I hope that um, lots of companies reach out to you after this. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I will continue to follow Curve's success uh, over the years. And uh, I look forward to hopefully having you back on road to CEO in the future. Great. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. It was great speaking with you as always, Will.